It was such a good week, such a good week. So many of you spent a lot of time and energy uh, hours here over the week helping make sure that uh, the kids camp was amazing. So super appreciative of that. Um, had a lot of fun. Uh, it's, it's, it's a special time at Community Faith. A lot of really cool things are happening. Lives are being impacted every single week for the last several weeks. We've been baptizing after the services. There's just been people coming up saying, hey, I'm ready to take that step now. I know that there's a scheduled baptism weekend, but I'm ready to take that step now. And the reason I say that is because uh, that's happening next weekend on the 15th of August. So one week from today, we are going to be celebrating uh, a lot of baptisms. We're scheduling that day. And maybe that's something that you've considered. Maybe that's something you've been thinking about. Maybe today you, there's something that God is gonna kind of make really clear to you as you're listening to me or as we continue in our time together. And you're like, man, it's, it's time. It's time for me to take that step, to make that decision, to follow Jesus, but to let everybody know that I'm a Jesus follower and uh, to be baptized. I wanna ask everybody to do this because I know some of you, you're like, man, I've been baptized or I don't know of any specific steps God's calling me to take right now in my life, but somebody around you might. And I think this is a way that helps everyone feel comfortable by taking your phone out and go ahead and text best you to 97000. You heard Paul talk about that a little while ago. You see the connection card on there. If you click on that connection card, once you get that link, then you'll see a place to check the box. Say, I want to talk about getting baptized or I want to get baptized. And uh, we'll make sure that you get registered for that and you have everything you need. You'll see some other things there, prayer requests, ways that you can get more connected and more involved at COF. But uh, by doing that all together, it makes it easier for those that maybe are on the fence. And they're like, man, if I pull my phone out, everybody's gonna know that I'm taking that step and that makes me nervous. We're gonna have some fun and I'm gonna create some tension today. There's, uh, I think tension is good. Already some of you are feeling off. You're like, something's not right. Um, Wes is already up there teaching. He's already on the stage. We only sang two songs. Listen, let me give you a little bit of a roadmap. I'm gonna teach and then we're gonna take communion together and we're gonna sing a little bit more at the end. We're gonna have some extended singing at the end of our time together and really kind of respond to what I think God wants to show us by singing, by raising our voices together. So if uh, maybe you walked in late and you're like, man, I missed the music, don't worry. We got you covered. It's gonna be a strong time at the end today. We've been in a series all over the summer looking at specific people throughout the Old Testament and how we can look at their lives and find some truth, find, find some steps that we could take in order to live our best life following Jesus. And to kind of set that up for today, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with my family. We were sitting at the dinner table and I don't know why it came up, but one of my boys asked, dad, how do you know if you have a big forehead? And I was like, man, this is deep. I mean, I don't know if you have those kind of deep conversations at your table with your family, but I was like, man, I, I don't know, Braden. I said, but I do know this. I don't think any of you have a big forehead, but I certainly do. And so I pulled my hair back and uh, because I've got a large forehead and I've always had a large forehead. And so I pulled my hair back and Braden goes, that's not a large forehead, that's a receding hairline. And I was like, <laughs> and immediately as he finishes that statement, my youngest, Cam, doesn't pause to consider the emotional wreckage that is taking place in this moment in my life. He just goes, whoa, started from the bottom, now we're here. Just, I mean, <laughs> didn't miss a beat. And I was like, spanked both of them, sent them to their room. But it created some tension. I was like, man, I just got shamed for my hairline. And now some of you are like, Wes, you gotta show us. <laughs> no, <laughs> you're crazy. <laughs> Listen. I wanna trust you, 
And I wanna trust you watching online, but there's, there's at least one person that's gonna take a screenshot and you're gonna make a meme this week and you'll be like, landing a plane on my forehead or comparing my forehead to the great white sandy beaches of Florida or something. I'm just like, no, that's just not gonna work. So uh, I got trust issues and so I'm not gonna do that for you today. But the reason I say that is because the truth, the truth hurts. The truth is uncomfortable. It puts us in a place where we're vulnerable. It puts us in a place where we begin to ask questions. And the question I want us to consider today is this, how did we get here? How did we get here? I don't know if you've had that thought over the course of the last several months or the last few years, at some point in your life, just reflecting on everything going on around you, everything going on in the lives of people you're close to, maybe even in your own life, asking, how did we get here? And what I'm wanting us to consider is not necessarily how we collectively have gotten here, but to really kind of go a little bit deeper than that, because I think we can land in some places, we maybe think some, some political stances, maybe we're too far on the right or too far on the left or too much in the middle, or maybe there's some educational issues that we need to work through or poverty, or maybe even religion has, has uh, contributed to some of the, the chaos going on around us. But I want us to push past everything as a whole, and I want us to think about ourselves. How did we get here? I mean, I don't know if you've ever had that moment where you've been in a conversation and maybe you said something and as soon as you said it, you thought to yourself, oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. But you just continued on in the conversation and then you got home and you started to process. You started to kind of feel a little bit uneasy, a little bit guilty. You're like, oh man, I I really don't know if I should have said that. So then you get your phone out and you text them. You're like, hey, listen, I'm really sorry I said that the way that I said it. That's just not me. But if it's not you, then what is that? Who is that? See, I want us to really reflect on what's on the inside of us. What's, what's with us? What's going on in us? What's going on in our hearts? What's going on in our minds? What's at the core of who we are? I was driving down the road Friday with my oldest and we were driving and I was trying out the new Waze app. I don't know if you use a driving app when you're driving around town, uh, but I was trying out the new Waze app. I haven't used it in a while and there's been some upgrades. And one of the upgrades that I didn't notice until we're driving on the road is that there's a speedometer detector. So I was driving and all of a sudden I hear this like ringing sound and my son goes, hey dad, you're speeding. So now Waze tells me when I'm breaking the law. That's just great. And then he continued on and he said, you know, it'd be really funny, dad, if there was like this voice that came on, it wasn't just a, a ringtone, it was like this voice and said, excuse me, sir, you need to slow down, you're speeding. And so I just kind of began to process that. And I'm like, man, that'd be really awkward and uncomfortable depending on who was riding in the car with you. And then I started thinking about life. Like, what if life was like that? Well, what if there was audio to everything that we're thinking, everything that we do, everything that we're processing? I mean, you're sitting down in a restaurant and you've had this amazing meal. You're looking at the dessert menu and over the loudspeaker comes this voice, this real self-righteous voice. And it's like, um, excuse me, sir, you've already put 12 pounds too much on this week. So you probably need to avoid the dessert tonight. Or you're walking through the mall and you notice that attractive female. And it's not the first notice, the first look, it's that second longer look where you maybe start to process some things in your mind that aren't really healthy. And then there's this voice that comes over the loudspeaker. Um, Excuse me, sir, what is your wife's name? And it kind of creates this tension. Where does that come from? What is that? What is that? What is that sickness? What is that disease? What What is it that's corrupted us? How did we get here? 
I want us to look at the very beginning, going all the way back to Adam and Eve. And I want us to see, as we walk through this, I think we'll recognize our own rebellion, we'll recognize a potential response in our rebellion, and then we'll see the restoration of God as we look at this story all the way back in the beginning. So we're gonna start in Genesis chapter two, begin to understand how we get here, but also where do we go from here? So let's pick up verse four, Genesis chapter two. In the day that the Lord God, now I wanna pause right here for just a second. Here's what I want you to do, a little bit of, I need to make sure you're with me, okay? Because we've changed it all up and maybe you're really frustrated. You're like, man, I wanna sing some more. Let me help take your mind off that. This is what I want you to do. Every time you see Lord God, I want you to keep a tally. I want you to, to see how many times do we see the Lord God. I've highlighted it for you as we're walking through the creation. This is God doing what only he could do in this moment in the beginning of the world, the beginning of humanity. So it says in that day, the Lord God made earth and heaven. So we're at one. Now no shrub of the field was yet on the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth and there was no man to cultivate the ground. It continues on. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. I mean, we've got the origin of humanity right here the first life, the first human life. It says, and the man became a living person. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Now, how many, we, what are we at so far? Four, all right, good, we're, we're tracking, this is good. Verse nine, out of the ground, the Lord God caused every tree to grow that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So we've got the two trees. We, we, Maybe you've been in church, you know where this is, this is going. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it. He said, listen, dude, you gotta go to work. That's a word for somebody. Then the Lord God commanded the man saying, from any tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For on the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. That's important to remember. Remember what God said to the man, to the, to the man, not the woman, that's important. In that verse, it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And all the fellows said, yes, and amen. He says, I will make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And then verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. And the Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Lord God, Lord God, Lord God. How many times do we see that? 11, man, you guys are awesome. Y'all are better than 9.30. 9.30 was afraid to say it. Um, 11 times we see Lord God. It's important to pay attention to that. You know, the longer that I've been reading my Bible, I've recognized the importance of paying, paying attention to repetition. Oftentimes there's something significant for us to see there, something maybe of urgency, something of purpose. It's interesting, we see the creation happening. We see God referred to as Lord God over and over and over. And it brings us to chapter three. And something unique happens in chapter three. We look at the first verse and look what Satan, look what the serpent, look what the enemy shows up and does. Look at this first verse. It says, now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field which the Lord God, there it is one more time, 12 times had made. And he said to the woman, look what he says, has not Lord God, but has God really said, 
you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And we got to pause right there. Do you see what's happening? Immediately, the enemy steps onto the scene and he begins to try to deceive. He begins to try to distort Eve's view of God. You see, he's okay with her understanding things about God. He's okay with her knowing some things about God, but he doesn't want her to believe and trust and rely on the Lord God. Because if he can deceive her from recognizing him as Lord God, then he can begin to remove her from the goodness of God. And the enemy wants to do the same thing for you and me. He says, did God really say that? He's like, are you, are you sure? Look what he says, he continues on. For God knows that on the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. He's saying, hey, listen, I, God's, God might be holding out on you. I mean, God, maybe, maybe he doesn't want you to have that because he's afraid that you'll be more like him and you won't even need him anymore. You see, he's trying to throw these lies out. Look what verse six says. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. Notice he's with her, right there next to her. I mean, he's not off like grilling and killing out in the wilderness, getting things, like doing manly things. He is right there next to her, like watching her eat the fruit to see if she's gonna drop dead. But do you see what's really happening here? The enemy is working to deceive He's okay with you acknowledging him as God, but he doesn't want you to acknowledge him as Lord God. And so he begins to deceive and distort and distract you from who God is. Because if he can do that, then he can get you to begin to take steps away from God. Our first thing that I want you to understand today and what we see in the story is that our rebellion leads us away from God. Our rebellion choosing to do things our way, choosing to trust ourselves rather than trusting our Lord God. In verse 16 of chapter two, we see very clearly, God says, you will die. And then in verse six, we see the enemy say, you surely will not die. Do you see the deception taking place? It begins to create doubt about who God is. I found an interesting quote from A.W. Tozer this week from the knowledge of holy. Look what he says. This is what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It's interesting, what he's saying is he's saying, it's not so much what you do, what you say, how you act. What's more important is what you think, what your mind considers when you think about God. What is going on in your mind? What is going on on the inside? That's what's most important. And then he continues on and he says this, we tend by secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. What A.W. Tozer is saying is he's saying how you see God, how you view God determines your response to God. It determines whether or not you see him as Lord or you just see him as God. We begin to have a distorted view of God, which leads us into rebellion against God. Maybe, maybe you've fallen into the trap of thinking about God in various ways, or you know people who have thought of God in various ways, and maybe the way you would describe God is more of this um, older grandpa in the sky. He's nice, he's friendly, he's gentle, he's compassionate. He's got a long white beard, walks around with a bucket full of candy, trying to make everybody's life better. But he's a little bit 
you know, clumsy when it comes to technological advances. He needs bold print on his phone. He gets frustrated when the TV remote doesn't work the way that it's supposed to, to work. And ultimately, the way you begin to see God is someone that you maybe interact with with reverence, but there's no relevance when it comes to the specific circumstances going on in your life. You think God is, God is good, God is great, and God's done a lot of great things over the course of history, but I'm not sure that he's able to do much in my own life because he's a little bit detached and old school and old fashioned. Maybe that's not where you land, or maybe you've landed in a place where you think of God as the angry man upstairs, just waiting to pounce on you, waiting for you to mess up, waiting for you to fall on your face so that he can crush you, squash you, wreck you and and just get you out. And so you begin to think about God this way and it begins to lead you to places where you think, why would I I wanna interact with him when all he wants to do is, is condemn me or to strike me dead with a lightning bolt? The bottom line is, is you find yourself in a place where you're trying to get as far away from God as fast as you can. And the thought of being involved in church or being around people who go to church leaves you in a place where you think, why would I wanna get closer to him? Because if I get closer to him, he's just going to crush me. Or maybe you find yourself in a place where when you think about God, it's not Lord God, but it's more of my personal assistant. Maybe when you think about God, you think about God in more of the context of Alexa or Siri. I actually asked Alexa this morning in my kitchen. I said, Alexa, do you ever get jealous of Siri? Because I was curious about that relationship. Like, is there, some, is there some jealousy and some resentment between the two? And she said, I'm partial to no AI devices. I was like, okay, thank you. If you're watching online, Alexa's probably talking to you because she heard me ask the question. I apologize for that. But maybe that's how you view God. He's there. He's always available. He's always on call, just in case you need him just in case you find yourself in a place of panic where you don't have all the information that you think you need, you don't have all the answers to the questions that you have that life brings to you. And so you call on him in those moments, hoping that he's going to respond with something that is going to help you advance to where you want to advance in your life. He's the personal assistant in your busy pursuit of the life that you want. And the danger of finding yourself in a place where you view God that way is you get to a place where you begin to ask questions of him. You begin to look for answers from him. And when you don't get the answers that you like, you push him to the side, you put him back on the shelf, at least until life gets messy again, a little bit more chaotic and you've got more questions. Maybe it's none of those. Maybe it's just, I'm still trying to figure this all out. It's still, God's kind of ambiguous. It's this this being that's out there. It's this light that's out in space somewhere. You look up at the stars, you think there's gotta be a creator for this, but I'm not sure I really understand the, the, the bigness of God, but yet the connection that I get to have with God. And it begins to dictate how we respond to who he is. And for every single one of us, we find ourselves in life living in rebellion. We're born into it. It's our natural tendency. This is us. This is our story. This is how we got here. This is our reality. So maybe the question you begin to ask is, is is God God or is he Lord God? I asked this question a few weeks ago. Is he primary or is he secondary in your life? And maybe you've surrendered your life to him at some point, but maybe there's some things you still kind of want to hold on to. 
Listen, if there's anything in your life that you're unwilling to surrender to your Lord God, you will live your life surrendered to those things. And it's a dangerous place to be because where you find yourself is in rebellion against God. Our rebellion leads us away from God. Notice what happens next in Genesis chapter three, verse seven. It says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. All of a sudden they begin to see something different than what they'd ever seen before. As a, as a result of their rebellion, they have chosen to walk away from what God has called them to do. They have chosen to walk away from the goodness of God. It says both their eyes were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves waist coverings. Verse eight, now they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and the man and his wife hid themselves. It's important for us to see that. They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? This is interesting. What you see in Adam and Eve in this moment where they recognize their rebellion and they recognize their nakedness. You see them respond this way, but it's the same way that you and I respond. You see, when we begin to think about their nakedness, it's not just the fact that they didn't have clothes on. It's pointing to the insecurity that they have because they've made some mistakes. They've made some choices they're not proud of. Insecurity leaves us in a place of vulnerability. You think about where we're at sometimes, you, you don't want everybody to know everything about you because it leaves you in a place that's insecure because you begin to think, what are they gonna do when they have this information about me? How are they going to respond? Well, with God, Adam and Eve are paranoid. They're like, what is God gonna do? We didn't do as he said, this can't be good. And so what do they do? They hide. And it's a little bit ridiculous. They're hiding from the creator. Adam's like, oh my gosh, we screwed up to the trees. Grab some fig leaves on the way. I don't know if you've ever played hide and go seek with toddlers. Um, my boys when they were younger used to like hide and go seek. I like hide and go seek with my boys more now than I used to because I can actually, it's a challenge to find them now. When they were little, they would run and hide and you would walk into the, probably the first room you get to and you would see them. For my boys, they would always run to my closet and they would get behind the clothes that were on the lower rack and you could see their feet sticking out. And the clothes were always moving. They couldn't sit still. And I don't know if you've ever been there, but when I'd get in there, I'd be like, there they are, same place they were hiding last time. And I would always ask, Brandy, have you seen the boys? I can't find them. No, I hadn't seen them, Wes. Hey boys, are you in here? Are you in here? And you know what they would do? Every time, no, we're not in here, dad. <laughs> I mean, it was ridiculous. I knew they were there. I knew they were hiding there. I would even ask them, they said, no, we're not here. That's kind of what's going on here. Adam and Eve are hiding in their shame, in their guilt, uncertain of how God's gonna respond. And listen, I don't know if maybe that's a place where you found yourself recently. Maybe you begin to think about some of the choices you've made, some of the recurring habits that you've continued to find yourself in. You begin to think to yourself, man, there's no way that God is gonna be good to me. And you've been running, you've been hiding. And can I just say that I am confident of this today, the fact that you are here or maybe that you just suddenly stumbled across this live stream or this video maybe six months down the road and that God is using this so that you can hear about him is proof and confidence to me that he's running after you, not to take you out, but because he wants you to come back to him because your rebellion has separated you, but he's not finished. He hasn't given up and he hasn't said, oh, well, there they go. See ya. Something happens here. You see in verse 10 says, he answered, 
I heard the sound of you in the garden. This is Adam speaking. And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree from which I commanded you not to eat? Now, listen, God already knew the answer to this question, but he wanted to see if Adam and Eve would confess that they would own, would they take responsibility for what they've done? And look how they respond. They respond differently. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me. Let me hang on just a second. He's complaining to God about the woman that God gave to him. I didn't see anything earlier in chapter two about him complaining when she was running around naked with fruit in her hands in the garden, all right? All of a sudden he's here, he's like, God, this is your fault. You gave me this woman. It's her fault. She did it first. And so I ate it. She gave me some of the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. They respond. Here's what I want us to see. Our response has the potential to bring us back. But what's interesting is we don't always respond in the best way. Oftentimes when we find ourselves in a place of rebellion, we begin to justify it. We begin to rationalize it and begin to think, well, you know, I, I've made some mistakes, but you know, I, at the end of the day, I'm a decent person. I'm, I think I'm still a good person. We begin to compare ourselves to other people. Or when we justify it, we're justifying it based on the circumstances that we've had to survive, the circumstances we found ourselves in, the circumstances that we were born into, the situations that have presented themselves around us, the crowd that we find ourselves in. We begin to make these excuses for why we do some of the things that we do. Maybe for some of us, we try to practice more religious activity I feel guilty or I feel ashamed or I feel insecure about who I am and the choices that I've made, especially in relation to this big almighty creator God. And so I, I gotta go to church more. I gotta, I gotta give more money. I gotta volunteer some more. I gotta start memorizing some verses to try to clean myself up, to try to make myself right so that maybe God would accept me and bring me back. It's this religious activity. It would be like a husband going home with a bouquet of flowers and saying, hey, listen, I cheated on you for the last two years, but here's some flowers. I hope we're good. That's not, that's not how it works. And that's what we see in the story. That's what God wants us to see. This is how we got here. We got to the place that we are. The corruption in our life is a result of our rebellion that has separated us from God. And the truth is, is that the best version of you is actually a new version of you, a new creation. And you and I aren't capable of doing that on our own, but we need it. We need a restoration. We need something new. We need something different. Psalm chapter 51, David is writing this Psalm. Now here's why you need to know this. This is what's significant about this verse. David has just been exposed a year after his entire ordeal where he chose to assault sexually Bathsheba. He used his power, he used his leverage to take something for himself at the expense of somebody else. Not only did he do that, but he murdered her husband to try to cover it up. And the murder of her husband resulted in the murder of other people that were around her husband. It was a terrible situation. David was guilty of it. And for a year he lived hiding that, running from God. And then all of a sudden one day, you can read this story in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and chapter 12. Nathan shows up and he says, God knows you are the man that did this. 
And in this moment of shame, of guilt, of being overwhelmed for the choices that he had made, he writes the 51st Psalm. And the first word that he says is so important. He says, create in me a clean heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. That word creates is the Hebrew word bara. What he's saying, he's saying, bara in me. It's the same word that's used in Genesis chapter one, verse one, where it says, in the beginning, God created. It's this idea that something was created beyond human capacity. You and I don't have the capability or the ability to bara anything. It's creating something from nothing. So David, in his shame and in his guilt, recognizing his rebellion that has been devastating, that has literally taken the lives of other people, that has brought hurt and pain in the life of other people and for himself, he's saying to God, God, bara in me something new. Bara something in me that I'm not capable of creating myself. Maybe that's where you find yourself. And I don't say that to shame you or to condemn you or to make you feel pushed out. I would say if you find yourself in that place today, that it's the best place that you can find yourself. Because when you find yourself at the end of yourself and you begin to ask the question, how did I get here? Then you're in the perfect place for God to barah something new in you to create something new in you. This is great news, but understand there's a cost. There's a price to be paid. David understands this as he's writing this. Look what he says in verse 11. He says, do not cast me away. That's the cost. The cost, the consequence, the result of what David has done is that he would be cast out. He would be cast away, eternally separated from his heavenly father, from his heavenly father's goodness. And David is begging him. He's saying, do not cast me away. He's saying, don't make me live out the consequences of my rebellion from your presence and do not take away your Holy Spirit from me. If heaven is living in continual the continual presence of God, then the opposite of that would be to live without the presence of God. Hell. You feel that tension? The truth is uncomfortable. David understood this truth. This is what David is talking about. What David is saying is he's saying, I am worthy of being separated from your goodness but he's falling, casting himself down on the compassion and the grace and the mercy of his heavenly father saying, I know what I've done and I take responsibility. I take ownership for it. I am done hiding. I am done running and I'm running to your grace and mercy saying, please take this from me. Create something new in me. I want to be who you created me to be. Look what, you know what's interesting in this? whole story that's not just David's story, but it's also our story, is God does it. He does just that. If you go back to Genesis chapter three, verse 21, it says, and the Lord made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is the first time in scripture in the Bible where we see something happen that is pointing us to Jesus. It's the first time that we see substitutionary atonement. Something innocent had to give its life so that someone could be covered, so that someone could be brought back to God. Adam and Eve had put together fig leaves. That's insufficient. It's not acceptable to God. So God took the perfect animal 
and he made clothes to cover their shame, to cover their guilt, to cover their rebellion. God did what they weren't capable of doing. It's pointing us to the cross. Our restoration has been accomplished through Jesus. Your restoration, regardless of what you've done, what you've experienced has been accomplished in Jesus because there was a cost. I remember the very first truck that I drove. I grew up driving a truck, my dad's truck. My dad had a pickup and so I could not wait to the day that I could have a pickup. I wanted one so bad. I remember when I got out of college, got out of seminary, I bought my first pickup truck and I was so excited about it. I had it about four months and I was parked at a friend's house and they had a daughter who had just started driving and she drove a Hummer. See where this is going, don't you? One night we're hanging out at their house and she was gonna leave to go hang out with some friends. And so we were like, see you later. All of a sudden she comes running back in in tears just, just a moment later. And she runs to her dad and she says, dad, I ran into Wes's truck. And then I burst into tears and I ran to her dad and I said, she ran into my truck. I was so bummed, I was so disappointed. I was so excited about that truck and there was damage to it. Like I couldn't drive it home, but you know what I said? I didn't really cry, not in that moment, waited till I got home. I said, hey, listen, it's okay. It's not a big deal. <clears throat> it's a big deal, it's not a big deal. It's gonna be okay, I'm, it's okay, I forgive you. But you know, I still had to get my truck fixed and that cost money, it was expensive. There was a bill to be paid. See, it's not enough to just say we're sorry. I mean, think about, move beyond a truck, think about relational hurts, relational pain. When someone hurts you, you feel that, you carry that. I mean, it would be so awesome if we could just, when someone hurts us, just take that pain, take that hurt, take that baggage and just take it off and put it in the closet and say, okay, whew, done with that. Or, or take it off and put it on to somebody else. We, we try that sometimes. That's a whole different message for a whole different day. You can't do that. It's there. You feel that. And it has weight to it. Same is true. When we live in rebellion to God, it comes at a cost. And the cost is being separated from his presence, removal of his spirit in us. Somebody had to pay that cost. Jesus paid that cost. A thousand years after David wrote that verse, create in me, barah in me something new. Jesus goes to the cross. And on that cross, one of the last things Jesus said as he still had breath in his lungs was this in Matthew chapter 27, Verse 46, it says, in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in the life of Jesus, he understood what it was like to be pushed out of the presence of his heavenly father. He experienced what I was supposed to experience, what you were supposed to experience. But you know what's interesting about this? You know who originally wrote this past this verse? David. David said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying, God, don't abandon me. So on the cross, Jesus chooses to be forsaken so that you and I don't have to be forsaken. He chose that because he loves you, because your heavenly father loves you. The reality is simply this. Jesus was forsaken because you were chosen. Jesus was forsaken because you were 
chosen. I don't know where this lands for you today, but I would just say this, regardless of how drastic and destructive your rebellion against God has been, or how slow or fast your response to his goodness has been, restoration is possible for you because Jesus was forsaken. He chose to be forsaken. He chose to take that cost, to take on that consequence. It's why we remember Jesus with communion. But before we do that, and before we sing, I just want you to consider this. As you think about Jesus doing what you and I couldn't do, when you get to that moment and say, how, do, how did I get here? What do you do for that? What do you do in that moment? How, how did I get here? When you ask that question, you're not asking that question because you're so excited about being in that place. You ask that question because you're looking for a way out. Jesus is the way out. He's already accomplished it. All God is asking you to do today is to recognize your rebellion and respond to his grace and his goodness and his mercy and his, his kindness for your life by surrendering your life to Jesus. Today is an opportunity for everything to change. Today is an opportunity to have a new perspective, to begin to see things a little bit differently, to realize and recognize that you are not forsaken, you are not forgotten, you have not been pushed out. Your heavenly father wants to be your Lord God. He chose you. He's pursuing you right now. There's so much value in understanding that because we all desire to be pursued. We all desire to be chosen. As we begin to trust him with everything, 100%, and we begin to see God differently. And when you see God differently, you begin to see yourself differently. You're not looking at God as this detached, happy old man up in the clouds. You don't see him as this angry, being trying to squash life out of you. You're not looking at him as just some random assistant. You don't look at yourself as beat up, messed up. You begin to see yourself as his son, as his daughter. Your perspective changes. And as you realize this, you begin to see I was chosen I am accepted, I am complete. I maybe haven't lived a perfect life, but I am perfect for my heavenly father. And nothing that comes before me can take me out because my heavenly father has power over all of those things. And so when the enemy begins to speak lies and deceit, tries to distort how I see my heavenly father, I can look at him and say, hey, listen, I'm his son and you have no room to speak into my life. There's power here, there's confidence here. This is why we take communion, because Jesus made that possible. That's why Jesus told us to do this often. He told us to take the bread, take the cup, to eat it, remembering his body that was broken. He paid the cost that you and I couldn't pay. And his blood was poured out so that you and I could live in forgiveness, so that we could be in the presence of God not just in heaven one day, but even when we're living life on this earth. So here's what I want us to do today. Here's how we're gonna close. We're gonna sing a little bit. And I know that the habit is to take this and to jump into communion really fast. And 
I'm just gonna ask you that you take your time today. You've got some time. I'm gonna ask that you don't, you don't try to bounce and leave this room too soon. I believe God wants to do some powerful work in us. Notice I said us. He's not finished with me and he's not finished with you. And so what would it look like for us to really reflect on who Jesus is as we sing about him, as we remember him through communion and let him go to work in us, even in this moment. And maybe you've never crossed that line of faith. You've never trusted Jesus. Before you take communion to celebrate Jesus as Lord, maybe today the step you have to take first is to allow him to be the Lord of your life, to be the boss, to call the shots so that when you remember him, you can remember him as your personal Lord, your personal rescue. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done and the difference that it makes in our life. We've done nothing to earn it. We've done everything to be pushed out, to be separated, to never experience your goodness. And you chose to come after us anyways. And we're grateful for that. We remember you for that. We celebrate you and we sing about you because you are perfect. You are good. You love us. So right now do what only you can do in this moment. We trust you with it. In Jesus name, amen.